0: coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast and now your host Mike Florio.
1: May two edition of the PFT PM podcast and we're going to get right to it because we've got two interviews today. One of them is lengthy. The first one Jets GM Mike McGagnon. That's about 18 minutes I think. Then Ian Rapport aka Rap Sheet of NFL Media. He's an NFL Network insider. That was a lengthy one. I tried to push that one as long as I could to get him to hang up on me like he did with Chad Dukes, but to no avail. He hung in there until the end. I enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully you will too. Before we get to those, let's get to the news of the day. I need like a, I need like a produced da-da-da-da, something like that. Hopefully it won't be that drop. Hopefully it'll actually, you know, sound like some sort of a musical uh, instrument and not my horrible voice. All right, I'm talking fast because I got a lot to cover. How about I slow down and cover less? Des Bryant, currently unemployed. And I take no pleasure in that. I'm just saying those things for effect. Look, I can't imagine nobody would give Des Bryant a one-year minimum deal. How in the world is that the case? Offer him a one-year minimum deal. The guy can still play. Surely he hasn't just completely lost his skills. And if he did, why'd the Cowboys dick around until April? to cut him. They should have cut him right after the season. Well, you can't right after the season. You can do it the day after the Super Bowl. They should have done it then. So now for cap reasons, they may have had to wait until the league year began in March, but still, I don't know how you come to the conclusion that the guy just can't do anything anymore. And it gets back to the point I was making earlier today on PFT Live. Why in the world would Cowboys executive Will McClay come out and say that Dez just couldn't do it anymore. Why piss the guy off? Now, if he just can't play, it doesn't matter, right? But if he can play, he's going to be even more motivated to try to get you. So if no one's willing to pay him the league minimum, he just has to sit and wait for someone to get injured. And even then, if you wait for someone to get injured, maybe they call Dez and maybe they don't. And somebody made a point today, and I want to use that to illustrate how collusion can happen in the NFL. Because Des Bryant, currently unemployed, right? Teams independently deciding without any coordination via the league office or among each other not to hire Des Bryant. They're each making their own assessment that they don't want Des Bryant. And I'd be shocked to find out that there are text messages or emails from the league office to specific teams among various teams discussing and debating and agreeing that Des Bryant is in some way bad for business. I'd be shocked if there's anything like that. We've seen players before, veterans who, once they fall off the cliff, they fall off the cliff, and that's that. Contrast that with Colin Kaepernick again Eric Reed, And for those of you who think that I write something about these guys every single day, it's driven by the news. And the news on Wednesday, fairly significant. Eric Reid has filed a collusion grievance against the NFL. That's a big deal. So that gets covered. And I see people make the point from time to time that it can't be collusion if these teams are just deciding on their own that these guys are bad for business, right? Independently, simultaneously, or eventually coming to the conclusion that it's not in our interest to give Colin Kaepernick and or Eric Reed employment because they are bad for business. Now that sets aside the notion that, the NFL has given these players the right to protest and is now holding their proclivity to protest against them. And that could be the basis for other potential legal action. And the NFL Players Association may have been hinting at that today in the statement that it issued, acknowledging the Reed grievance, because the union says, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't rule out other potential legal options on behalf of our members. But in the Kaepernick case... Unlike Des Bryant, I have a feeling text messages, emails, other communications in which the wisdom, the business practicality, the desirability of giving employment to guys at the forefront of the anthem movement is discussed. And I doubt that there's a single email coordinated by the league, through the league office, to the teams, among the teams, debating the merits of Des Bryant. And my guess is there are plenty that were exchanged back in March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October of 2017 about Colin Kaepernick. Now, once he filed the collusion grievance, chances are things dried up pretty quickly. Chances are the flow of digital evidence immediately slowed to less than a trickle once Colin Kaepernick filed his collusion grievance. But that's where the evidence of the collusion is going to come from. And that may be a good argument, maybe more from a PR standpoint. I don't know that the arbitrator needs to understand that, but with a player who just no longer has it anymore, he's probably never the topic of conversation. Pick a player. Any of these guys who... I make this comparison all the time. Spoiler alert, Bruce Willis, Sixth Sense. He was dead all along. I didn't give you enough time to click off. If you really don't know the premise and the twist in The Sixth Sense 20 years after it came out, I don't know what I can do for you. But I always say that players are like Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense. They're the last ones who find out that their career has been dead all along. Whether it's Terrell Owens, and he tried for multiple years to get back in, whether it's Des Bryant, whether it's anyone, very rarely does a guy walk away on his own terms. Typically, the guy wants to keep playing, but nobody wants him. And my guess would be that rarely, if ever, is the status of those players addressed by the league office and among the teams, unless there would be some connection like you know, the agent for the player is a good friend of someone at the league office. And, hey, you know, this guy's available and, you know, he's been good for the league and maybe we should, you know, what's out there. But I doubt that there's ever been any emails or text messages or phone calls among teams and or league officials in which they say, well, you know what? It's probably better that this guy is unemployed. I have a feeling there's a few of those with Colin Kaepernick and maybe to a lesser extent with Eric Reed. So that's how collusion happens. And that's how it gets proven. Independent businesses are not allowed to act in concert in this context, or really any context. In the normal scope of employment, it would be potentially an antitrust violation. In this context, it's a CBA violation. Because, and I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds here, and I've probably explained it this way before. The fact that there is a collective bargaining agreement that stretches across these 32 businesses allows the 32 businesses to have one set of rules, minimum salaries, salary caps, restrictions on movement, a draft, etc. That's how they get around the antitrust violation. But it's still a violation of the CBA because the CBA says no collusion. And that would, any concerted effort, any collaboration, that's how you get collusion. All right, a couple of other things before we move on. First, the kickoff, they're making changes to the kickoff. And here's what's amazing to me. Previously, they haven't changed the kickoff play. They've just set up the parameters of the kickoff to have fewer kickoffs. Now they're actually changing the kickoff. No more two-man wedge. No running start for the kicking team. What else are they talking about doing? Only three men deep, so you're going to have eight guys basically 10 yards away from the guys who are lined up toes on the line where you don't run in advance and I, I remember old NFL films highlights where there'd be like kick coverage guys in a three-point stance on the line is that what was that for a free kick? I don't know if the rule at one point was no running start, but that's what they're thinking about doing. And if it reduces the number of concussions on kickoffs, then the kickoff sticks around. But Mark Murphy, the CEO of the Packers, has made it clear they're going to look at this year to year. And at some point, it very well could be that the kickoff goes away for good. Now, part of me thinks they keep making these changes so that when the kickoff does go away for good, it won't be as dramatic. Because when I raised recently the possibility of getting rid of the kickoff, let's just be done with it, let's just get rid of it, people lost their minds, and I could tell that people haven't come to grips with where this is heading, that the changes to the kickoff rule haven't really registered with people, this alarm that they should be having, that you know what, the kickoff is going to change dramatically if not go away, so maybe it takes a few years of a dramatically altered kickoff to the point where we accept the fact that the kickoff's going to be gone. Helmet rule. I still don't know what they're doing with this, folks. They got this broad rule aimed at trickling down to the youth level of the sport. Safety advances. But when is it a foul? When is it an ejection? How many will there be is it a significant change? Is it not? The mixed signals are overwhelming from the NFL. And this has the potential to be a mess. I'll say what I said during PFT Live. They got to get their act together on this. They've got to. This is an... If I was an owner of a team or a coach of a team, I would be raising Kane, to say the least. I would be pissed. What is the rule? What do I teach my guys during off-season workouts? How do I communicate this to my staff? How do we go about properly officiating offensive line play and a running game? You know, apparently this rule prevents you from lowering your helmet to initiate impact, but you're not prohibited from lowering your helmet to brace yourself. How do you tell the difference? How many guys stop and brace? How many guys brace? They're always moving. Now maybe pass blockers are bracing, so when you're in pass block position, you're allowed to dip your helmet and ram it into the guy who's coming in chin up. What's he going to do? He's going to come in chin up and take a helmet in the chin strap? Hell no! This is a mess, folks. This is a mess, and it was always it was all hatched secretly, and and I don't you know I I don't. I, I always hate it when people paint the media with a broad brush, especially in this case, I'm part of the media. Where are all the voices who should be saying, what in the hell are they doing here? Why was this treated as such a secret? What is really going on? How is this game going to change? And I I don't know. I, I feel like there's a segment of the media that feels compelled to hold the sport accountable to be as safe as possible. What about the segment of the media that should hold the sport accountable to be the sport? To avoid making changes to the sport that are so dramatic that the sport becomes unrecognizable and opens the door for someone else to come up with a competing professional football league. I know I've been saying that a lot lately, but I believe it. And if one comes along, I'll cover it. And and I don't like the idea that I'm supposed to feel bad because I like football a certain way. It's the karate example that MDS shared a few weeks ago on PFT Live, and it's brilliant. Parents don't want their kids getting kicked in the face at karate class. Parents reserve the right to order a UFC pay-per-view in which the participants, consenting adults who understand the risks, are kicking each other in the face from time to time. I... What are they going to turn football into? Is it a moral dilemma to enjoy football the way it used to be played? Is it wrong to enjoy football because these guys are voluntarily doing it and a certain percentage of them will have cognitive issues later in life? Now, a certain percentage of the population will have cognitive issues later in life. And I still don't know how you differentiate the two. And I feel guilty even mentioning it because I feel like there's this, there's this, segment of the media that's going to wag their finger at you if god forbid you say anything that potentially defends football the way it's always been played and it's hard to defend football the way it's always been played when the nfl is hell bent on changing it all in the name of trickling down these safety provisions to the lower levels of the sport there's got to be a way i said this earlier today and i like it so i'll say it again there's got to be a way to fix youth football without breaking professional football And that's what somebody needs to be doing. That's where leadership is needed. From time to time, I have questions about whether the leadership of the National Football League has vision. They've learned how to put out fires. How about, let's avoid fires. How about, let's not walk into another fire. You know, a lot of times when you react, you end up exposing Another sensitive area. And then you got a problem there. And then you got to react the other way. And then you got a problem over here. And you're twisting around trying to avoid getting stabbed in every different direction. I think we need vision, foresight, and planning. Otherwise, we're going to wake up one day and the NFL isn't going to be football anymore. And there's going to be some other football league that people start watching. I don't want it to come to that. All right. One more thing before we play the interviews. Actually, let me do this. Let's play the Mike McKagan interview. You need a break from listening to me. I'll talk a little bit more between that interview and Ian Rappaport, and then I'll answer some questions on the back end. So here is Jets general manager, Mike McKagan. All right. Welcome back. Joining us now, a man entering his fourth year as general manager of the New York Jets. He is Jets GM, Mike McKagan. Mike, welcome back to the program. How
0: are you? Good, Mike. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. And, you know, you think about the amount of time you've been on the job. On one hand, it goes by quickly. On another hand, I mean, if it was high school, you'd be going into senior year. Give me one thing that you've learned since you took the job that you wish you'd known when you walked through the door the first time.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. I think, you know, I tell people all the time, and having been like a college director and and been in the pro process, too, and on the pro scouting side— Um, It's a little different when you literally move that one chair over. I've actually told Rick Smith this years ago, Um, you know, it's like when you kind of move that other spot over, everything kind of falls in your lap. I think the one thing I would say that you're not always prepared for, at least I wasn't prepared for before I took this job, was the media part of it since, um, you know, really in my previous roles I've never really dealt with the media that much. But You know, I think I kind of had to learn on the fly a little bit, and you just try to be yourself and, you know, be as honest as you can. Of course, there's obviously things you can't say, um, you know, from a sensitivity or competitive standpoint. But, um, you know, you just try to, you know, try to be yourself and be honest. And that would probably be the biggest thing I would say is just maybe having a little more knowledge or exposure to the media before you actually took the job. You become really – you really become a public figure, which is like the biggest difference. That's that's the, the part you lose your anonymity a little bit.
1: And you're in the most active media market in the country. But I look at you, I look at your head coach, Todd Bowles. I think both of you understand that the the media will leave you alone if you're not giving them something controversial and something intriguing that they can keep pushing and pushing. And I think your personalities fit that market because you're not constantly having them show up at your doorstep because you guys aren't saying things that are going to get the media riled up.
0: Well, I guess, you know, I think uh, that may be the case. I think we try to again, try to be as informative and honest as we can. But of course, you know, you try to, you know, you try to do things that you, you know, think either, you know, sort of relay the message or the vision you have for the team and try to describe what you're trying to do and accomplish.
1: How much of a factor was the media prevalence in your market? How much of that did that did that play into the selection of a quarterback?
0: You know, I think the one thing, and people have asked me this already a couple of times, you know, the pressure of making the pick and the pressure of this and that, um, you know, truly when you find is, you know, and I, it's probably the same way being a head coach, um, but as a general manager, you, you really put it off to the side. So I think, you know, your focus really is making sure you make the right decision the decision, not only that is correct, but has the best, you know, the right to the best uh, in terms of the upside from an opportunity cost standpoint. Um, and that's what you do. You really kind of compartmentalize things. You you try not to worry about things you can't control. You try to focus on things you can control. Um, you know, you realize that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people have a lot of, you know, emotions and invest a lot of time and money in, in supporting the team from a fan standpoint. And your goal is always to make the best decision. So, um, you know, the team has success on the field and the fans obviously, uh, you know, are rewarded or enjoy it from off the field.
1: As it relates, though, to the individual quarterbacks that you could have taken with the third overall pick, as you scout these guys, do you take into account, hey, this guy I think will hold up well in this media market, this guy will struggle, this guy who knows? Is that a factor when you assess the strengths and weaknesses of the quarterbacks?
0: Yeah, I think, I think the one thing you do, Mike, and I think every team probably does this with quarterbacks especially, is you're trying to sort of picture them being – you know, kind of a leader on your team in your locker room, but also, you know, they're in a very high-profile position, so they're dealing with the media, uh, you know, constantly. Um, you know, you take it into consideration, but I think you're really trying to find, you know, players that from an ability standpoint have the skill set you have, and from a personality or intangible standpoint can handle that aspect of it. I don't think, um, you know, there's different markets or different, you know, you know, small markets, big markets. Some guys may, you know, be a little more comfortable in a smaller market but in the end they're always under the scrutiny this NFL really is a a national, you know, platform for all these players in terms of the exposure they get. Um but you take it into consideration. Um but it's, you know, it's a part of it. It's not the the sole the sole focus of your whole decision-making process, but you definitely want to see a guy that can be the in your mind the ability to be a good player but also be the face of your franchise.
1: When was the first time that you actually rolled up your sleeves and paid close attention to Sam Darnold as a football player?
0: Well, uh, honestly, probably about two years ago. Um, I think really, with with quarterbacks, you don't, you know, again, you don't control who comes out early, and we have, and I have no influence on from that standpoint, but. Um, you know, it's a very important position. I think every time you get a chance to see players, I always tend to, you know, you spend so much time focusing on the draft eligible players, but you're always looking at the younger guys to kind of see, um, you know, who may be a good player going forward. I would say simply with quarterbacks, you know, you start that process very early, and uh, there's it's such a difficult position to play that if you're, you know, any time you get an opportunity to kind of see them and get a feel for them, um, you know. So I would say simply uh, probably, I probably, you know, paid attention to Sam Darnold, you know probably his two thousand sixteen season, and I saw him u s c play a few times and had a chance to go in there, so you know not that you actually look at him directly, but you you know you're aware of him and he's on your radar and I think really you roll your sleeves up probably about you know really about two weeks from now, like literally we started our process for this year's draft class about almost like you know about literally two weeks to the day from Probably today, a year ago, and, um, and of course you, you focus on them all the way through the process. And once they declare, you you get a chance to get access to them, and then you really dig into them, and you know get a chance to get all the you know, intangible and background information on them, and get a chance to see them up close, live, and personal.
1: And then at what point before you make the phone call to Sam Darnold as the third overall pick in the draft did you come to the conclusion that this is the guy? Do you remember the moment where the the switch went for you that this is the guy we have to have?
0: Well, you know, I think there was a lot of you know we made you know we obviously made the trade from six to three, and we felt very good about moving into that spot, and we really didn't know exactly who was going to be available. We thought the potential players we would be choosing from, we felt very good about. Um, You know, I think you know, I think you know, as you go through this process, and it's it's different with different players. But uh, as we kind of got exposure on Sam, and 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 this is not unique to him. There's other players. You know, you you kind of get a comfort zone, and where you feel you know you you feel good about their evaluation from an ability standpoint, and you feel good about their you know evaluation from an intangible standpoint. I would say simply, with the underclassmen, you tend not to actually see them for the first time until you get to Indy. But it's such a small little window; I like get 15 minutes with them. It's probably more uh, for us, at least, when you get a chance to get to the pro days and you get a chance to have them come into the facility. I think really. I would probably say simply with those guys or with Sam in particular, it's probably when he had a chance to come in here and visit us for the 30 visit and we got a chance to spend a day with him. You know, we felt very, very comfortable with him at that point in time. When you make
1: the move from number 6 to number 3, Mike, do you have in your mind a hierarchy like, hey, I'm at number 3, I have 1, 2, and 3, and I have to be comfortable with the possibility of taking the third guy on my list, or you just have a general feeling that whatever happens, however it plays out, you'll be content, you'll be happy with whoever's still left when it's time to make your pick?
0: Yeah, you know, we had a we had a, a pretty good I mean, we've done so much work on a lot of the players in this draft class. We felt really good you know, when we made that decision, made that trade. I, I think, um, thinking back on it, we went into pro free agency. Uh, you know, Brian Heimerdinger uh is kind of my right hand and guy and, and we did a lot of work on not only the pro free agency but also the college draft. Um, you know, we had a plan going into it. We actually sat there and uh You know, we obviously pursued Kirk Cousins, everybody's aware of. And once that didn't go, you know, that didn't, you know, happen, he signed with Minnesota. We quickly turned, pivoted uh, around that time frame. I actually had got a chance to go see Baker Mayfield at his pro day. I saw Josh Rosen at his pro day. They were, like, literally right back-to-back. Sam's pro day was still coming up. Josh Allen was coming up. But I'd spent, I've already I'd spent so much time evaluating those guys, or we we had evaluated those guys. We felt very good about going from six to three. Um, we did it kind of a little ahead of the curve, and uh, you know we paid a, a good price for it. We also realized that sometimes on the trade charts, when you're going up to get a quarterback, you pay you, you know pay a little bit of a premium. Um, but we felt very good going into that third spot, and uh, we were very uh, you know we felt well positioned to get a good player there. And as it turned out, you know Sam fell to us, and we were very happy and very excited to take him.
1: So the draft begins with the Browns taking Baker Mayfield at number one overall. When were you reasonably certain that that's the direction they were going in?
0: You know, it's interesting. Going into the draft, and, and, and this has happened a few times, and I always tell people, like, there's always things you don't expect uh, to happen uh, leading up to it. Um, I think for us, you know, there's a lot of names kind of bouncing around with the first pick. Um, you know, I think when we made the trade, our, our assumption was Sam was probably going to be that guy. Um based on all the projections. But as we uh with this one in particular, like I don't really think honestly it was till the day of the draft when you started hearing some grumblings, um, that it was gonna be Baker. Um and at that point in time, you know, you weren't sure if it was you know, if that was gonna hold or be something different. And of course then you had the second pick which was the Giants and we knew they liked certain players and there was also the possibility of them either taking a quarterback or taking, you know, a running back or another position. Um but also possibly they may trade out of that position. So um, you know, really, you know, it was of the morning of the draft that we kind of, you know, had an idea there was a, a realistic possibility that, um, Baker would go one, and, and we're probably like everybody else in terms of our knowledge of that. I think years past, I think when we d- picked Leo, we kind of knew about four or five days out there were some scenarios that looked like Leo may slide to us, and, and then, you know, more recently with Jamal Adams, we knew about two or three days out that there may be a, a decent scenario where he would potentially be there, but I think for us, quite frankly, we really, uh, probably didn't, you know, realize there would be a, you know, a Baker or another player may go there at one uh, until about the day of the draft.
1: After Mayfield was announced as the first pick, Mike, what's your anxiety level on a scale of one to ten over the next ten minutes as the Giants figure out what they're doing?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was, um, I don't know if it was anxiety. I think it's more kind of excitement. We felt very, again, we felt very good with who was going to potentially be there at three for us. Um, but I think really what you end up doing, it's, it's funny, Mike, I don't know if you've ever been in a draft room, but, um, you know, there's, you know, again, sometimes the phone's ringing, there's potential trades happening. Um, a lot of times nowadays we're literally like watching the TV like everybody else and we're seeing if a player suddenly gets a call. Um, I think the one thing with the Giants was when they had, uh, when they kind of, they turned their pick in kind of not necessarily early, but earlier, you know more often you know we kind of monitor if, if teams are kind of facilitating a trade if if the teams at the draft are on the phone um you know sometimes when people don't take you know they take the full allotment of time sometimes they're trying to facilitate a trade uh so you always you know our big thing was you know we knew the you know we knew the Giants like Saquon quite a bit and he's a heck of a football player um but we were just kind of see if they were going to stay and pick a player or pick Sam or pick Saquon or move out of the pick and you know of course when they turned the pick in we realized it was Saquon it was uh a lot of excitement and a uh, little little tension, but but for the most part, we again, I've always I've felt very calm going into this because I felt very good about being in the third spot.
1: Did you have a flow chart or a plan for what you would have done if the Giants would have called you up and tried to put the squeeze on you to do a flip-flop to ensure that they don't trade that second pick to someone else?
0: You know, we... we uh, yeah, you do... So the thing we do, a lot of teams do, and, and we're no different than everybody else, you go through a ton of different scenarios. You go, you figure out what you would do in terms of compensation if things were to happen Um, you know I'm not necessarily you know going to talk about hypotheticals of things that didn't happen that we would have done but uh, we were very prepared for that and um, you know we felt very comfortable again you know if something were to come up if that was something we would have an interest in but more likely we felt very good at three so I have said this before like we were really really comfortable being in that third spot and seeing what would happen.
1: What does it mean to you to have a veteran quarterback on the roster who doesn't view the rookie as a threat but is someone that the veteran can help learn the game and develop the way he needs to?
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really good thing to have. I know a lot of teams when they invest in a a young quarterback, they like to have that environment. Um, I've been around a few teams that have had different quarterbacks in that role. I think quite frankly, Josh is one of the best ones I've Sort of been around, and uh, you know, as a person, and what he brings from an intangible standpoint. I still think Josh has some good football left in him, and you know, kind of excited to see what he can do. But, but I feel, and I think most teams ideally want to have a veteran guy in there that is, um, you know, can can you know, ideally you know, not only be a good player for you, but also have an environment in that room which is good for a young quarterback to come in, mature, learn in and use as a resource. Um it's a competitive business, everybody wants to play, everybody wants to start. I understand that. Um but we feel we have a really good room and, and not to take anything away from quite frankly Teddy Bridgewater who is another you know, obviously, a very good young quarterback, and he's in there and competing, and um, an outstanding character guy in his own right. So, I think there's some really good, uh, at least two really good veteran guys in that room that a uh, young quarterback can, uh, you know, kind of immerse himself in and use as a resource.
1: How many quarterbacks will you carry on the 53-man roster?
0: Well, we know we know we have a decision to make here, and uh, we'll probably, you know, work through that process here going forward. I, I think we haven't. Uh, we have an idea what we're going to do, but again, it's one of those things from a competitive standpoint in terms of roster building. We're going to, you know, play that out as as we see how these guys develop and progress through the spring. So, um, you know, we have an idea what number we're going to be at, but again, this is not something we're going to, you know, openly talk or discuss because most teams are always trying to figure out, well, especially when they get the final cuts. Hey, they're going to carry two or three, or at this position or that position. So we kind of keep that is uh, kind of uh, you know to ourselves.
1: A couple of years ago, he used a second-round pick on Christian Hackenberg, who hasn't played in the regular season. What what would you say the biggest reason is why that we haven't seen him on the field for regular-season game action yet?
0: Yeah, really. The coaches make the determination of when guys are ready to play. And um, even last year, I know Josh played uh, very well for us, and um, you know played until late in the season when he got hurt. So. Um, You know, the coaches make that determination when they feel the player is ready and has earned the opportunity. So I think simply, um, you know, that's what they felt at the time, and that's how the season unfolded. Um, But again, you know, we like a lot of our young quarterbacks, both Bryce and Christian. We'll see how they do this spring going forward, along with the other guys. And we're kind of excited to see that being a pretty competitive room and see what happens.
1: Now, recently, one of your receivers, Quincy Inunua, talked openly about the Patriots potentially being vulnerable and maybe the Jets can topple them in the AFC East. When you hear that, do you do you get a little fist pump going or do you cringe a little bit because you'd rather the Patriots not get the fire stoked any more than it already is?
0: Well, we we have a very long-standing rivalry with the Patriots. It's funny actually coming here. Um, you know, of course, I think every, a lot of teams have rivalries with the Patriots. They, they, are, they obviously are a very, very good team and have done very well, um, you know, through their you know, obviously through their, you know, their existence most recently. Um, But it was interesting. There's, I don't think, um, you know, honestly, I don't really think much about that stuff. I think, you know, um, you know, we know there's a very big rivalry with them. That's, you know, that's, that's obvious. And, uh, you know, the players obviously weigh in and say what they say, but, you know, there's a lot of football to be played here before we get a chance to actually play them. And, 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 but I like personally, like from our, from my standpoint, I like the rivalry aspect of it. I think when I was first came in the league, I was with the Redskins and, we had very big rivalries with obviously the giants and the eagles and but but the the cowboys was the big big one and uh, but that's that's part of football that's what makes this game so great
1: do you have a countdown clock somewhere in your office that will tick off the days the minutes the hours to august 3 2022
0: uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's one of those ones you do. Um, it's more in your head, but honestly, after the draft's over, I'm I'm quite excited excited to see what these guys look like here in minicamp and uh, rookie mini camp here this weekend. So, um, but yeah, in the back of your head, you you really want to see them in pads and when they get in here. Um, but at least we get a little taste of it early. But yeah, yeah, you know, every I think every GM, honestly, every personnel guy or coach probably has that same clock. So I'm no different.
1: Oh no this is a different clock. Let me, let me let me repeat the date and the year. August 3 of 2022. Oh that's 2020. the day Tom Brady turns 45. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God! I'm sorry. I misunderstood that. Um, I thought it was more the uh, start of the season. Um, yeah, I would say. I, I think actually, um, I actually have on my phone a little thing that rings every time he has his birthday. So um, <laughs> my wife is like, "What's that alarm for?" I'm like, "Oh, it's Tom Brady's birthday today." No, um, no. I, I, you know, I think uh, you know he's a heck of a player, and, and I haven't, uh, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know if it, I, I guess I haven't set the age 45 clock in my 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 phone yet so we'll see
1: but but i mean in all seriousness how much of your construction of the roster now getting a young quarterback now how much of that takes into account the reality that at some point tom brady will be gone and at that point maybe there is a vacuum at the top of the division that the jets can fill
0: yeah you know i think i think mike what you you end up doing a little bit you know you're cognizant of what the other teams around you and the age of their players um but really, I mean, we we have a vision for this team, and I think when you came in here, you know, we really want to build it through the draft, and that takes time. and We understood that, um, you know. And the other part is, you know, I think we have, you know, we want to have a young core of players, which I think we've we've you know have a foundation now. Um, we're excited about adding Sam to that that mix. We're in very good cap shape. We, you know, literally, I think we lead the league in terms of available cap space for next year. I don't know if uh, picking up Leo's option has maybe changed that slightly, but we're definitely one of the top teams in terms of cap space going forward. So we feel good about, you know, building this team and the vision we have for it. And um, you know, again, New England has obviously been a very good team in 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 the league. And you know, of course, like all teams, um, they've had a, you know. They've done a very good job, but course, as time goes by, like players get older, and you know. But if uh, we can position ourselves well, like our goal is not really to measure ourselves about where New England's at, but more about the team we're trying to build. And and of course, if we can achieve that, then uh, we'll be in a good position to be competitive, and and, and the fans hopefully will be very supportive of and excited about.
1: Well, Mike, congratulations on making the bold move to get the guy you wanted all the best to you, and to coach Bowles moving forward. We look forward to talking to you again down the road.
0: Sounds great, Mike. Thank you very much. And uh, let me know if anything I can do for you. All
1: right. Thanks to Mike McCagnan. Very enlightening as to how they went about coming to their decision to trade up and ultimately to take Sam Darnold, who I think has the right demeanor, the right mindset to thrive in the New York media market. Because I don't think. That the people in the media there will see him as somebody who can maybe be pushed and rattled and badgered into saying things that will make for good copy and make for good sound bites, and I think that's the right demeanor to have. It's the Eli Manning demeanor. You don't want to be over the top. You don't want to be a sound bite machine, because the more sound bites the media gets, the more they're going to want. You want to be not boring, but closer to boring than flamboyant. That's for sure. All right. I saw an item from the New York Times regarding, and I want to pull this up and make sure that I get this correct. The headline, Redskins cheerleaders describe a trip to Costa Rica that crossed a line. Now I was reading the headline. Obviously, I try to avoid saying the team name in deference to Native Americans who are actually offended by that word. And yes, there are Native Americans who are offended by that word. I think plenty of people regardless of background, national origin, gender, age, race, whatever, will be offended by this article that relates to a Costa Rica calendar photo shoot. And the cheerleaders were at the photo shoot with sponsors and FedEx field suite holders present with up-close access to the photo shoots, even though There was apparently some topless photography, some body paint. It's one thing to not have those make their way into the calendar. It's another thing to have a bunch of men there that they don't know watching. How does that happen? And we've seen these irregularities. We've seen these lawsuits. We've seen these incidents cataloged as to how the cheerleading staff gets treated. These are all extensions of the team. The team is eventually responsible for these actions. And these date back five or six years. It came up from the perspective of fair pay. Are these people required to work more than they should? Or more accurately, are they getting paid enough for the hours they put in? And this all falls under the Fair Labor Standards Act. At some point, you're shorting them. Because for every hour they devote, they should be getting their hourly rate. They're not salaried employees. They're hourly workers, and they should be getting the money that reflects the total investment of time. And then through those lawsuits, we've been privy to some indignities that haven't really reached the level of Me Too because it's typically a female manager of the crew imposing at times bizarre, at times offensive requirements upon the members of the cheerleading squad. This is the first time it kind of crosses over and it gets creepy. It falls into a category that, what's the NFL going to do about this? Is there a personal conduct policy issue that arises here? Is Daniel Snyder responsible for this? Even if he didn't know about it, even if he wasn't involved in it, even if he wasn't present, is he responsible because this is happening on his franchise's watch? And we hear a lot of time about integrity of the game. Right there upset with Jerry Jones because... He was taking internal concerns public. Given the current climate, given any climate, but especially now, doesn't this make the league look pretty damn bad? What are they going to do about this? One of the other allegations, at the end of a 14-hour day that included posing and dance practices, the... Squad's director told nine of the 36 cheerleaders that their work was not done. They had a special assignment for the night. Some of the male sponsors had picked them to be personal escorts at a nightclub. So go back to your room and get ready, the director told them. Several began to cry. One of the cheerleaders said, this is according to the New York Times, they weren't putting a gun to our heads, but it was mandatory for us to go. We weren't asked, we were told. Other girls were devastated because we knew exactly what she was doing. Odd stuff. And it starts with a claim that when they got there, their passports were collected. So they're in Costa Rica, their passports are collected. Why don't they get to keep their passports? Weird stuff, man. And if the NFL is truly concerned about the integrity of the game, the shield, all the things that have prompted the advances in the personal conduct policy and the aggressive action that gets taken against individual players... This doesn't sit well, and they need to do something about it. All right, this is a story that just came up within the past half hour, 45 minutes or so. Earlier in the afternoon, had an opportunity to speak with NFL Network insider Ian Rappaport. Here's my discussion with Ian. All right, as promised, PFTP and Posse, you asked for it, and now you are getting it. Here he is, NFL Network insider Ian Rappaport. And if I had a soundboard that would do like a round of applause, I would hit the button yeah. right now, but I don't have it. So you're just going to have to, you know, it's a, how are you?
2: Yeah. It'll be like most of my life where I look around and imagine people are smiling and applauding, but in reality, it's probably
1: slightly different. But yeah, How much, how, how much of your work do you do from your house?
2: Um, almost all of it. Um, it's actually really lucky because I got the studio in the basement and, you know, I go in on Sundays for a game day morning, so I do that from the, from New York City. Obviously on, you know, road trips like Draft and Combine, but daily basis it's like I'm in my office all day making calls. TV, you know, are up to the minutes on 4 to 5. I go outside, I play with the trucks and the trains with my boys. I go back, we do total access. It's actually not a terrible schedule.
1: Where do you live?
2: In Westchester, New York.
1: No, I mean, I want the actual address. I want people to be able to show up.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there'd be some people who would come by and may, have some very, have some rounds of applause, I would say. Uh, Do you buy or a, rent? Uh, we buy. Is it a house? Yeah, it's a house. It's, we moved seven times in 10 years. So, um, it's very nice to have a house and to know that we're no longer moving. So that, that's a, that's a very good thing for me, but mostly my wife, which is more important.
1: How big of a house?
2: Uh, well, let's see.
1: The typical measurement is square footage in case you need to look it up.
2: Um, I don't know. Big enough to where we have three bedrooms uh, and an office for me and a huge basement where we have, like, the biggest trains and stuff you could imagine. So
1: uh,
2: I'd say pretty big. You can have a catch across the living room.
1: How much do you pay for it? (laughs) (laughs) um how but that's good so you commute to and from the office i.e. 345 park avenue on sundays and otherwise as needed or you just do everything other than game days out of your house
2: literally everything other than than game days at my house and and it's so funny walking through 345 it's basically closed up so i could go up the elevator go up to uh the cafeteria we kind of do it from the outside but it's only just me and my producer It's, it's kind of an odd experience but uh you know, getting there at 5 in the morning on game day, it's kind of fun.
1: How long are you there on game day?
2: Till 12.50 until p.m., until I can know there's no longer any news happening, and then I go home and I flip on my multiple TV setup and I sit and watch Red Zone and uh, several other games and, you know, monitor whatever goes on and uh, kind of man the ship until you guys don't want it Eight, whatever that is.
1: Yeah, seven. <laughs> Thanks. It's seven p.m. Eastern. Thank you. Unless I guess your house may be in Nova Scotia and you're on a different time <laughs> zone. Listen, do you do you have a situation where you're on call? Like if all hell breaks loose, I don't know what the programming is on NFL Network when the games are on in the afternoons, but there's evening shows. Do they ever pull you back in on Sunday night?
2: Yeah, I mean sometimes, but it would have to be. You know, the problem is uh, is like very few things that I could say are more important than the highlights, you know? So, like, it would have to be a major injury. Like, I think I went on the night Carson Wentz tours ACL. Uh, when the Panthers got sold, I was on. When Jack Del Rio got fired, that was kind of like a, you know, an abrupt, stunning deal I went on. But it's, it's kind of rare. So, like, what actually I'll do is, like, I'll have people over. You know, I don't have a lot of friends, as you can imagine, but the friends I do have, uh, we'll have them over and watch games, and they're all kind of weird. They're like, shouldn't you be working? But it's like, well, I sort of did my work, and then now this is setting the foundation for the work the rest of the week, but, like, I kind of just watch games. And it's, it's actually like, I mean, besides that I really like football, it's the best because it's the only chance all week to just kind of sit back and chill a little bit.
1: When you go into the office on a Sunday, do you, when do you know what you're going with? Because I, you know, I've got a different existence. My news comes after a day's worth of games. So there's stuff that you chase based upon what happens during the course of those games. You're in a position where you're trying to get stuff out there at the same time. Other networks have pregame shows. When do you have your, your ingredients baked in for what you're going to say on a given Sunday?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say mostly, um, by probably by Friday afternoon, I know. I mean, there's always, you know, I'll sit down on on Friday night, but really on Saturday afternoon, go over the inactives, and I'll kind of collect those. And, you know, you're supposed to hold them until the next day. So I try to do that. Sometimes it's impossible, but that's sort of what you try to do. Um, and – but for, like, big topics, it's like, you know, now I've been doing this, you know, on Sundays for five years. So I can sort of tell – like, what's the Sunday topic, what will hold, and what won't? And obviously, you know, I've been burned by holding something, and then it breaks on Friday Friday afternoon, you're like, crap. Like, I was holding that. It would have been good, but then someone else broke it. So it's always a little bit of a roll of the dice. Um, but, like, there are also some things where I'm like, all right, I'm pretty sure that only I know this. So if I could just – I could hold it for five days and feel confident that it's going to hold – And a lot of times it does, but you know, you do get, you do get burned a little bit. It's kind of a, kind of a walking the tightrope type deal.
1: Give me an example of one that you knew for multiple days in advance you had, and you were not concerned at all about anyone else having it.
2: Um, I would say, all right, here's one, um, the Jim Caldwell contract extension. That wasn't, you know, um, I would say I knew that probably four or five days in advance. It took a long time to actually find out what that was. I mean, I thought it was what it was for probably a couple months, you know, meaning like the one plus one rather than a multi-year. It took a long time to actually hammer that out and figure out 100% sure that it was just a one-year extension. So once I found out, you know, you, you kind of tell the people involved, like, hey, look, I'm going to be reporting this, you know, and all that. You, you know, you do everything you do whenever you're reporting sort of like touchy or big news. And I knew I was good because it was so hard to figure out. Um, and, you know, once and, – and that's sort of an example. And, you know, it was I would say it was moderate news. It wasn't like a bombshell, but it was certainly interesting and ended up being telling about his fate. But that was one where I was like it was so hard to actually get to the meat of it because no one was talking that I'm pretty confident
1: I I had it, you know, And, and it's one of those stories that corrects the record. There's already a report out there that was presented with much flair and circumstance that Jim Caldwell has a contract extension. And that means his fate in Detroit is secured, that he'll be there, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out it's one of these phony extensions where. There's only one year of a guarantee, so it's cheaper to move on from the guy because you can fire him and just pay him for one more year instead of being on the hook for four or five years of pay. So it was a significant story, and it was telling, and it did correct the record because the prevailing view, and I think it was ESPN that had the initial report, painted a picture that just wasn't accurate. And that happens a lot, right? And what has that happened to you where you—
2: And I'm sure I've done it. I mean, I'm not sure. I've I've done it, too, where you get a piece of information. I'm sure I've done it with contracts. We talked about this where— you get the information, you put it out there, you're the first to break it, and then you sort of learn like two or three days later, like ah, like I should have been more accurate in using the words this way, or, or what I put out wasn't really what it is. And I, you know, I feel like I've become better over the years at sniffing that out and being like, all right, you know, here's one where. I need to be careful because I don't want to come back in two or three days and have someone be like, yeah, that wasn't at all what you reported.
1: But don't you learn over time who you can trust and who you can't trust when it comes to that?
2: Well, yeah, and, and you also learn, like, how people say things, you know? And I think one thing, I mean, I hate to, you know, I hate to give you credit. Um, but you. What the hell? I job. mean, shit,
1: man. I bring you on the podcast and you don't want to give me credit. This is your opportunity. This was part of the deal. This is the quid pro quo. Well, no. welcome to
2: my world. No, um, seriously, it's like you have sort of brought to light the, the fluff in contract reporting. So I think even agents now will probably give the fluff less and less because they don't want to be called out either as sources or otherwise. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you sort of learn like who will give you what sort of truth. Like, for instance, if you're trying to figure out injuries, you know, I know what agents or what. Teams or head coaches or whoever are going to say, or players, are going to say, no, I'm fine. And you know, like, you know, he's not fine. Like, I had one couple years back where there was a player telling me, I'm good to go. I could play next week. And he ended up being out for the season. And you sort of learn, all right, well, that's okay. But, you know, and I didn't report that he was going to play next week because I sort of had other information I was just like, alright, when this guy tells me stuff in the future, i got to be careful because sometimes, you know, players sometimes only see it like, I'm good to go, I'm good to go, until they're not.
1: Give me one that you had that you worried someone else was going to get and someone else broke it before you were able to report it.
2: Oh, God.
1: Uh... Give me the one that still bugs you now. There's got to be one that still bugs you now. I have one. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Yeah. <laughs>
2: All right, well, here's. Uh, I'm trying to think about All right, so I would say um, I feel like there's like, you know, 8 million of them. Um, I would say the one that still pisses me off more than anything, and this is like ancient right now, um, but the Lovey Smith getting hired by the Bucks. Have we, I've already told you this story.
1: If if you did, I've forgotten it. So go ahead and tell me okay, again. So, and and there may be a few so, people listening that have never heard it before, so they'd probably like to hear it too.
2: Well, yeah, okay. So um, <laughs> I knew I knew that Lovey Smith was getting hired by the Bucks, and you know, at the time it seems ridiculous now, but at the time this was like the biggest hire, right? So I was everybody. What the word I got was this is probably going to happen. So hang tight. And then everything went silent for five hours, which I didn't know then. Now I know, like, all right. Silence for five hours means they're negotiating and this is happening. But then I sort of didn't realize what was going on. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I'm watching a bowl game, and everyone's texting me. And this is before I learned to mute my phone from stupid friend texts um, when I'm waiting for work. So it was very annoying. And so I put my phone down. I take my son, Max, who was my only son at the time. Now I have two of them. I tell my wife. I say, hey, I'm going to go. Max is being real fussy. I'm going to go change Max. He's four months old. So I say, hey, bring my phone up when you when you go upstairs. She was like washing bottles. And she comes up about eight minutes later, and she says, hey, your phone rang twice, same number. And I knew I was screwed. And I was like, crap. That's not what I said at all. And um, she, I said, who was it? And she tells me. I was like, oh, my God. So I get the phone. I'm like, yes, what? I just missed your call. And this, this person says, the Bucks are hiring Lovey. And I'm like, oh, is it out there? It's like, yeah, Glazer just broke and like, I sh- screamed, uh, and you know, I credited him, which I did not want to do. But he broke it, so what are you going to do? And I did. Did you did probably, you retweet
1: his tweet and say this is true? Is that what you did?
2: <laughs> I th- I believe <laughs> I I I think I kept it in the same tweet. As, I think I just put it out there and said as Glazer Report, if I remember correctly. And then I was so angry, I yelled, and I never yell. Uh, and my wife screamed at me, which she also never does, by saying, like, if you miss a story by changing your four-month-old son, like, and that's the worst thing that happens. You'll be fine. But that still pissed me off. And so, now, um, and so now I take my phone with me wherever I go. Here, I'll give you another one real quick. Uh, I got word that the Rams were trading for number one a couple years back while I was getting my suit tailored. I put my phone down on a stool, and I come back and – I'd missed a text from four minutes before. And I think I got it out there the same time as someone, Peter King maybe, or something. But I would have had a pretty solid lead on it and put my stupid phone down.
1: But you know that happens. And when you traffic in information and when you are going for volume, you're going to have some of those. And I know the ones that you feel like, it's almost like almost getting a sack, right? That drives the yeah. pass rushers crazy. Like I came within a step of getting a sack. And you think about that one more than you think about the sack. So I think that's normal. I think. Uh, what was yours? Well, I thought you weren't going to ask me. I thought I was going to be able to get past it. First game of the season, you know, that's always when we get rolling. So you like to have something good, preferably that is relevant to the game. And what we do now, I don't hold something. If I have it, I'll go with it. And we've decided, hey, we can still talk about it and maybe we can add something to it. But people who may pick something up on Twitter aren't necessarily picking it up by watching it on TV. So I had known for a few months that John Harbaugh had gotten a contract extension that put him up near the top of the stack, seven and a half million, whatever it was, after they won the Super Bowl. And it was the game. Remember, they played in Denver that year because they couldn't play in Baltimore to start the season. That was 2013. And I finally like working it that week. Okay, I'm at the point where I can report that Harbaugh has a contract extension. I had some details about what it's worth. And. The person who ultimately gave me the final confirmation asked me to hold on to it until the pregame show that night because I wanted to go with it. Because I don't know, as far as I know, somebody else is going to have it and they're going to have it before the pregame show. So someone leaked it to someone else five minutes before I went on the air with it. And that pissed me off because I felt like that was deliberate manipulation in an effort to please multiple people. Like, hey, this guy is, may not even know, Florio may not even know that the other guy's breaking it five minutes earlier. And that pissed me off, and I'm still pissed about that to this day.
2: Yeah, I, I remember that, because I was just getting started, and that was sort of, you know, I was on our pregame show, too. Uh, it was Yeah, before that's right, before Thursday night. I was on a pregame show, and it came out bang, bang, and I was like, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, maybe there was like a group text, or it was weird. And then I was like, oh, I, you know, I, of course, missed it and I had to confirm, which is even more annoying. But
1: We know, um, we know, I know when the group text goes out because a lot of times I get it as well. And I know who copies and pastes the group's group text. And you're not the <laughs> one who does. But there is someone who copies and pastes the group text and has well, no shame when it comes to others realizing, hey, I can look at your tweet or I can look at my phone. It's the exact same words. Anyway. Well,
2: one thing about Twitter is Twitter calls you out on that, so I'm doing that because people will be like, uh, why are you guys all tweeting the same thing? And like, all right,
1: great. Yeah, I mean, at no, least make it a little it bit different. At, at least at, at least add a comma or something so it's not exactly the text that hashtag. was received. What's that?
2: I always add a hashtag.
1: Oh, well, anything other than you just you the actual.
2: Tell, you can always tell who the really good sources are because they'll send it to you as if you could... Just tweet it. I'm always like, that's that's so nice of you, you
1: know? Well, but then you have to resist the temptation to do it. Oh, yeah. So uh, let me see what else I want to ask you here, because you've already been charitable with your time, and I'm sure you have other things to do. Tell me the story about how you took the football in the face. Was <laughs> that real? Did that really happen, or was that staged? Because that ball's not coming in as hot as it could have been.
2: Oh, my God. Okay, so first of all, definitely one of my greatest moments, because – You know, now I think I know what's going on in TV. I think I know how to do it and all that. I didn't know anything then. I was not only did I not know anything, I was not good. Not that I'm good now, but I definitely wasn't good then. And so I'm standing, and back then I was a field reporter based in Dallas. So I'm standing on the sidelines in Houston. It's Texans Packers. And, you know, I would get so nervous before my hits back then. You know, I'd sort of like, you know, memorize or whatever what I'm supposed to say and, and, or, you know, my lines and whatever. So, I, I'm on the sideline, and either Aaron Rodgers threw it to be funny, or a punter punted it just by accident. We're not we're still not sure because I had one person on our crew say they thought they saw Rodgers throw it, and the other person say they swear it was punted. So I really don't know. So I'm staying there, and then the ball actually comes and hits our lights, and then comes if you you know the camera's facing me obviously, so it hits the lights and basically. On camera side and ricochets back in front of me. So it looks like it's coming at me a thousand miles an hour, but it actually ricocheted off the camera. So it's not coming at me hard at all, but it comes over my face. So it looks like it hits me in the face, which it obviously did not. So I take it and then, like, I'm like, whoa, like, do you guys just see that? And in my ear, back then it was Dion and someone else, like Baldy maybe or something, on our pregame show, and they are. Dying, like they are laughing so loud, it feels like someone's screaming in my ear. So I'm like, well, I'm not finished yet, because I had memorized all these things to say. So I like start talking back, and I have to stop myself because they're laughing so hard that I can't even hear anything. So I kind of do a double take, and I say, like, did you guys just see that football? And they laugh even harder. And then I kind of just continue, and I'm like, all right, well, I got through, and I'm done through what I was supposed to talk about. I'm finished, they say thanks as they finish laughing, and I hand the microphone to my producer, and they're all like, and, you know, it's a sideline, all these people are watching, and everyone's, like, standing there, like, stunned, and I just hand the mic to the producer, and I kind of walk up to the press box, and I'm like, I got to do something first, so I call my wife, I'm like, Leah, listen, something that happened, is not, it's kind of crazy, you might hear about this, I'm like, I just got hit with a football in the face. You did what? I was like, yeah, I was on camera. She's like, did you curse I said, no. She's like, oh, okay. I think you're good then. I was like, all right, great. So I go back to the press box, and it was already all over Twitter, like crazy. And about four minutes later, our website had posted the video, which I was like, what? And then, you know, went crazy. And then the next morning, it was on, like, you know, Today Show, and it was on Jimmy Kimmel, and it all went nuts. Um, But it looked like I had really held it together, even though I really just wanted to finish my life.
1: All I've ever seen is the gif. So after you recoil, you continue.
2: I continue, yeah. And I finish, like, talking about something about, like, Tom Clements or something. I don't even remember, but, like, I finish talking as if everything's fine.
1: Okay, well that's see. I never knew that whole story, and my, you mentioned my not,
2: not straight, which always annoys me. But whatever.
1: Well, but it does look yeah. like it. I'm, I keep watching it over and over again. It looks like it smacks <laughs> you right in the face, and something's weird. There's no spin. There's no rotation. It does look like it just drops in out of nowhere, and I didn't. I it, I didn't know whether someone had done that just like to mess with you. Whether it was somebody on your staff. Whether this was a shot that was made for shits and giggles. I didn't know. So now everybody knows the story behind you know, that show. Say the,
2: that word on your podcast i can
1: say whatever i want you can too
2: i almost cursed but i stopped myself before
1: what would happen if I'm, you i know you said crap instead of shit what would happen would you get a phone call from somebody
2: no i'm just so used to not cursing now because well i'm on air and because i have two boys and so i literally never curse anymore which i was one of the all-time great cursers in the world and it's frustrating to not be able to but what can you do sacrifices
1: Wait, how old are your boys uh, three and a half and five. Ah, shit, they can hear a few things. They're going to hear them anyway <laughs> soon enough. They're going to come home <laughs> saying things that's going to make your skin crawl soon enough. I remember Dude, I learning don't... the F word as a first grader at a Catholic school. I came hey, home hey, and asked my mom what it is, and that was an interesting day. Let me just tell you that. Hey, you covered yeah, both the I, Patriots. To go to the go G, ahead.
2: Louise, and that's pretty funny.
1: You covered both the Patriots and Alabama. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who's a bigger asshole, Belichick or Saban?
2: Um, I, I never thought Belichick was, uh, mainly because I sort of got his, I kind of like Bill, uh, mainly because I understood his act for the media. I sort of know how he sees it as far as delivering messages to his team. And I knew pretty quickly, like I wasn't going to bait him or push him into anything. So I would sort of ask things in a funny way because you know, you're not going to all of a sudden get him to slip up and go, oh, it is a torn ACL. So I kind of got a kick out of him. And off camera, he's, he's pretty funny. Um, Saban's a different animal because, you know, he is sometimes an a-hole. Um, sometimes he can't control himself. So you can bait him into saying something crazy in a press conference. So that was always really fun for me. So I'd sit in the front row and kind of intentionally get him to talk about things he didn't want to talk about because – He would deliver a headline that would be amazing, and you could just kind of get him to do it. Um, But, you know, there were also times where he wanted to control everything, and when he didn't, it just drove him crazy. Um, And so, see, I mean, sometimes, you know, he would basically treat media like he treats players, which sort of made him an ale at times.
1: What's your – read on what's going on with the Patriots with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and all this smoke. Patriots fans are in denial. Guys like Tom Curran insist something's going on. I'm sure you're still talking to people up there. What's your read on wh- on why Brady seems to want something and how in the hell is he going to get whatever it is that he wants?
2: Well, a I- couple things. Um, I would say that there's definitely something going on. Like Clearly, Brady does not feel appreciated. Um, which on one hand, I get because you know there should be like a freaking statue outside of him, uh, of him outside Gillette Stadium right now. I mean, for all he's done for the organization, you know, him and Bill together, um, it's the best partnership in the history of sports. And you know, in a sport where parity reigns, those guys have defied it. It's amazing. So he really should have a statue, and he should literally make a hundred million dollars a year. Um, now he doesn't, and that's partly his own choice because he's taken several contracts that help the team a lot. And then sometimes the team has used it, sometimes it hasn't. Um, But I do think there's a feeling of him kind of being underappreciated. I think that, you know, the not being able to use his own trainer kind of frustrates him. Um, And the other thing is, like, figure him and Belichick are like a marriage. uh, You know, it's not going to be roses and candy all the time. Uh, They're also not best friends. They have the best working relationship, again, ever, but they're not best friends, so sometimes they kind of rankle each other, and I think this is one of those times. On the other hand, I don't really care. I mean, I don't like mean to say it like that, but I really don't. Like, he's not a 1,000% happy at work. Like, not everybody is. You know, like, it's not warm and fuzzy all the time. Like, I, this focus on his feelings is so strange for me, because I'm like, on one hand, like Brady was great to me, so he's awesome and I'm a big fan of him as a football player because he's very good at it. But like why do we care how how, how he feels? You know? Well, be, well and I, here,
1: I'll t- I'll tell you exactly why because we are closing in on the end of his time in New England. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know whether it's going to be whether it's going to be orderly and clean or whether it's going to be awkward and clumsy, as I've said, and this is going to be before your time, but you know, when the train pulls into the station, it can pull in the way it's supposed to, or it can be like the silver streak and take out the entire freaking station. And you probably didn't get that reference at all. But not. What, what's going on with Brady here is fascinating because he clearly is trying to make his point known. And whether it comes from he only makes fifteen million a year, or twenty million a year, whatever it is. He's making fifteen million this year, or whether it's—I still don't know what happened with Malcolm Butler at Super Bowl Fifty Two, and I'm pissed off about. I think,
2: well, I do think the Butler thing is a big part of it. I mean, I think that's really a big part of it.
1: Why? why so why do you think Butler didn't play?
2: Um, I'll stick with what I heard at the time, which is it was a combination of him being sick. He was supposed to arrive Wednesday afternoon after practice. He was supposed to miss. You know, a big part of the practice week. Ended up arriving Tuesday, but he was sick, so he wasn't in the game plan. Wasn't going to start because he was sick. Had a terrible week of practice because his head was kind of out of it and because he wasn't feeling well and contract stuff. I mean, it was he, he had a really, by all accounts, a terrible week of practice. Um, and, you know, there's there's still some behavioral things. I think I reported at the time, a curfew violation. Um, you know, there were some things going on that all contributed – to him not playing. Um, You know, Belichick is big on trust, and if he can't trust you out there, then he's not going to play you. All of that being said, I still don't understand why he was active. Like, of all the things, him being active, you know, unless something happened on the sidelines... I, I don't know. That's I don't know.
1: So well, and I agree with you. Look, I, I looked at the game book after the game. He and Brian Hoyer were I think the only ones who didn't play. Although he got in for one special teams play, Hoyer didn't do that. So Butler just stood there the whole game. And if the players are perplexed, that makes me think whatever those guys were privy to. It's not a good enough explanation. They're looking at it saying, What the hell's going on? This guy's one of our top defensive players, the hero of Super Bowl 49. Why isn't he out there? Especially, Ian, because what they were doing didn't work. You got a half hour of yeah. halftime, and they had a dime package where they swapped one guy out for another, which means seven defensive backs were regarded as better suited than Butler that day. To your point, right. why even put him in a uniform if you're not going to put him on the field?
2: Right. And, you know, one thing about, about Belichick is he's so, I mean, so good, like obviously he's the best coach ever, that there's been a lot of these things where he hasn't had to or doesn't either one explain what he's thinking because he's Bill Belichick. And this is the, you know, fourth and two. I remember I covered that when they went for it in their own territory against the Colts. The reason he gave was we're trying to win the game. And fans are frustrated, but at some point it's like, look, he's the greatest coach ever. Like they're trying to win the game. You know, I have my own thoughts on that anyway, but it doesn't matter. But the well, point but, is, th- like,
1: but see, that time, there wasn't this, this extended, protracted sense that players were pissed off about it. They accepted it, and they moved on, primarily because they had right. another game the following week. This is seven right. months for guys to try to figure out what the hell happened, and there's this perception that they'd be getting ready to get a sixth Super Bowl ring right now, especially Brady, mm-hmm. he's the only one who'd be getting number six, but they'd be mm-hmm. getting a new one if... They simply had put Malcolm Butler in the game. Because at some point, you got to try to stop the bleeding. They were bleeding all over the place defensively.
2: Yeah, and I think that's kind of why this is done, because it's one of the only things where I could say. I mean, you know, when they lost Super Bowls in the past, I could always point to the reason. Freaking crazy catch, two crazy catches, you know, the Welkers drop or whatever that was. Um, I could point to the reasons. It was all physical. This was the only one where it's like maybe Belichick, did something to contribute, which is crazy, but also okay, because he's also a human. But I think that's why this has gotten so much publicity interest. I mean, for me, too, like I've made a lot of phone calls on this, because it's just still perplexing. Did you, know? you
1: did you subtly slip an F-bomb in, or did you say freaking? Freaking. All right. Yeah. We'll have to go yeah. back and check the tape. Well, <laughs> indisputable yeah. visual evidence. Will be test it?
2: I am pretty sure I accidentally said said the F word on WFAN like five years ago. Uh, I was very nervous people would catch it. I'm almost positive I did, but I could have said freaking. What, what show were you on? Uh, with Joe and Evan.
1: Five years ago? I'm sure the podcast's yeah. available. We'll have to go track it down. We'll have to put yeah. the FCC on notice belatedly <laughs> that a profanity was uttered on the air by Ian Rappaport. Hey, you've been charitable with your time. I put out a call for questions from what's known as the PFTPM posse. Let's do rapid fire. Let's do like 10 second answers or less. I'm going to scroll through some of these. If you want to go longer, go ahead, but I'd like to get to more of it. I'd like to get you off of here in the next few minutes. So here we go. Are you ready? Ready. The, uh, the real forno asks beer or whiskey. Oh, I drink so much of both.
2: Um, I would say, Oh, that's never going to be probably, taken out
1: of context.
2: <laughs> I would say, uh, whiskey.
1: Another one from the Real Forno. How would you personally make football safer? Soft helmets. What do you mean?
2: Like rugby style. Like soft helmets where all of a sudden guys can't just run into each other at will without repercussions. Like rugby.
1: At Matthew L. Farley, what does Mike Florio do that annoys you? Uh, Calls me the
2: uh, in-house Media organ.
1: Oh, that really bothers you? Does it really bother uh, you? Because that means I'll keep uh, doing it.
2: <laughs> like you were going to anyway, so.
1: Well, yeah, it's not like I was going to all of a sudden, hey, Ian came on the podcast, right. I'm going to stop referring. But, but, I mean, uh, listen, how much flack do you take? And and this is you, this, I mean, Schefter once had that job, Jason Lock and Fora once worked there, there are others who are there now. How hard is it for you to, to try to be objective as a reporter when you're working for the entity that you cover? How, how do you handle that inherent conflict?
2: It's not hard at all. It's like – it's really – honestly, it's like anything else because everything you do, not you but me, has the risk of pissing off someone on the other side. So I have a million opinions, but there's a reason I don't voice them. And everything you do, you have to be like, all right, I'm going to tweet this or I'm going to report this on TV, but it's going to piss off these people. So you either let them know beforehand or you parse it in a way where – the fewest people will get pissed off while still getting all the important, legitimate news out there. Uh, it's kind of the same as everything else. Um, it's just because of where I work, I guess just more scrutiny on it.
1: I don't think I've called you the in-house media organ that many times. Have yeah, I done that a lot? You, you just remember like the one time I did because it really pissed you off.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that's right.
1: But, I mean I mean, we could have this philosophical discussion, but I just put it this way. Like, let's say you had something very controversial and inflammatory about Roger Goodell, right? You're going to think twice before you go with that, not because of the fact that it's inflammatory or controversial, although that would be part of it, but also because you work for the NFL and he runs the NFL, and if you make him mad, that's going to be a problem.
2: Yeah, um, but I would say I'd probably do that for, for anyone else. But for that one, it would be different, yes, no doubt about it.
1: All right. Let me, let me move on to a few more of these. Cause again, you have been very gracious with your time and I don't mean that sarcastically. You have been. All right. Um, what would you like to most build out of Legos? That's probably meant more for um, me. Cause I talk about, my boy, my, I got a Legos my boys thing.
2: Like, my boys like fire trucks. So as many fire trucks as I could build, we'll do that.
1: What's the best draft rumor you heard this year that you wished had happened?
2: Uh, The Patriots trading up for two for Josh Rosen.
1: They were going to trade up to number two for Josh Rosen?
2: I don't know if they really were, uh, but I heard that I worked on it a lot early. And, you know, that's why you hear this one about them possibly trading up for Baker at two, Rosen for two, at two. You know, who knows what's real? Maybe they both just wanted, maybe they wanted to work out or visit with both and just said that. Maybe they really
0: were thinking about it.
2: Um I have no idea, but that was the one where I was like, wow, this would be absolutely insane. And I spent a lot of time on it, and obviously it did not come close to happening. Because well, if they were going to do it at 2, they would have done it at 9 or 10, you know?
1: Well, and, and the, I don't think the Giants were ever coming off a 2. You're going to come off a 2 for 23 and 31 this year I, when you've got 12 guys that are elite?
2: That was the biggest problem, and I think that's why they didn't even consider trading, because they just didn't want to trade.
1: One more. Can you provide any insight into the new helmet rule?
2: yeah don't lower your head and
1: run into people right but when's it a flag and when does it get you kicked out of the game
2: Oh, well, I don't know but I look forward to Judy telling us because uh, she's at this summit today um so I will I will hopefully learn some things in may at the meetings so I will I actually seriously will try to find out a lot of answers on that because I have like everyone else, I, I'm very curious about the specifics.
1: Aren't you curious about the fact that there were 10 proposals from the competition committee that they told us, the media, about, and then there was 11th proposal that no one knew about, and they went in there and they ran this thing through, and there was no transparency? Doesn't that bug you a little bit?
2: Um, I didn't really think about it like that. But now that you mention it, it is kind of annoying. No, I mean, I don't know. Um, I... I I want to see the final, 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 final answer before I have an opinion on this. Sometimes these things don't make sense until they're finished and then they do. And I hope this is
1: one of them. One more for you, and this is mine. How do you think legalized gambling is going to change what we do?
2: Uh, I don't think it's going to change what we do at all, Um, reporting-wise. I think what's going to be fascinating is People are going to be able to, if it happens, people are going to be able to bet on individual plays. Is he going to make this kick or not? Or is he going to, you know, third and long, could he complete it? Uh, It's going to completely change the way that gamblers watch football. Um, But there's going to be a lot of in-game things, so I don't think that will change reporting at all. I think the NFL will be ready if it happens.
1: And you know what? I agree with you on that last point. And actually, I've heard Roger Goodell talk about this, and I've gotten the sense that he's less concerned about the impact on the integrity of the game from the in-game prop bets because there's no real way to corrupt anything one play at a time. It doesn't corrupt the desire to try to win the game. It's when you have millions of dollars on the Raiders minus five where it becomes a potential problem to the integrity of the game but I think what it's going to do it's going to drive more interest in the sport it's going to make everything associated with the sport more valuable once the states however many it's going to take before there's a tipping point but I think there's going to be a race by these states to put gambling programs in place and I think it's going to be good for the league and one of these days we're going to find out exactly what the league plans to do do you have any information, any insight on how the league is going to handle this gambling phenomenon once it becomes real?
2: I I don't have any reportable insight except to tell you that they spent a year studying it and that they're going to be ready for it.
1: Do you have any non-reportable insight?
2: Yeah, I'll text you later.
1: All right. Hey, uh, thank you. I, I, expected, I, I held you as long as possible because I wanted to force you to hang up on me like you hung up on Chad Dukes. I was hoping you would do that. <laughs>
2: Then Howard Stern could talk about us like he did me and Dukes yesterday. Oh, he did? That's what I heard. Wait, when did he do that? Two days ago, I think, or three days ago.
1: Man, he needs to get a little bit, uh, he needs to get his information a little bit updated. It must have been a slow day that it took six weeks to finally land on Stern's radar. I'm going to have to go track that down.
2: (laughs) My friends are all excited.
1: Well, hey, uh, thank you. And I keep hoping that you'll tell me you have to hang up and go, but apparently that's not going to happen. So we'll end this in the conventional way. And uh, they're probably going to want you back again. I bow to the will of the PFTPM posse, but I have a feeling they're going to be happy with this. And uh, go have fun doing what you do this afternoon. And uh, make sure you have your, your pants on when you do it. <laughs> All right, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Ian for his time. Now we answer some of your questions. Now, look, my general advice is this. And this is how I reconcile not getting to every question that is posed. If I don't get to your question, ask it again tomorrow or the next day or whenever. And hopefully one of these days I'll get to it. Today, I got 71 and we've already probably been going for well over an hour. So let's see what we have here. At PFTPM Posse, will any member of the NFL front office cough, Troy Vincent cough, come on the PFTPM podcast to answer questions about this stupid helmet rule? I think calling it stupid gives away our bias, PFTPM Posse. I'll keep working on it. That's our next goal. We got Rapport. Sims is next. We'll work on getting Troy Vincent. PFTPM Posse, shouldn't the Browns want to be on hard knocks for the media exposure, especially with all the changes? They could pick up some fans, not wanting to be on it seems like the opposite of what they were doing in the lead up to the draft. Here's the thing though. I don't think being on hard knocks allows you to pick up fans. I don't buy that. You get fans by winning. That's it. And hard knocks may be a distraction to the effort to win. I don't have a problem not doing hard knocks. And if hard knocks went away, I wouldn't miss it. I know I'm in the minority. I don't care. That's my opinion. PFTP and Posse, is it better for Reed and Kaepernick to keep their lawsuits separate, or would it be better to combine them? Keep them separate. You want multiple bites at the apple. Multiple bites at the apple. Without question. Multiple shots at justice. The second case is often stronger than the first case. Always. Now, the NFL should want to consolidate, but it's two different guys. It's two different circumstances. They may have a hard time doing it. PFTPM and Posse, if TB12 really plans on playing three or four more years, why would he start the revolt against Bill now? Why not earlier? He's had the clout for a while. Why put the strain on the relationship now? Is it a power play by Tom Brady to get things changed? That's what I keep coming back to. What does he want here? What does he reasonably think he can get? Where does this go from here? And I really do think that he's just worn out by the pressure he's feeling from people closest to him, specifically his spouse, to stop playing. And it's an easy argument to make. You have a husband who is going to be 41 on August 3. He's had concussions in the past. We know that because Mrs. Brady said so last year, out of the blue. I I think that was the first step in this passive-aggressive game of chess. Although It's from a place of benevolence. She wants him to live a long time. She wants him to be healthy. You get to a point where it's like, why are you doing this to yourself? You've won your five Super Bowls. You're regarded as the greatest quarterback of all time. No one else is ever going to match what you've done. Why do you keep doing it? Your kids are getting older. Cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon and all that stuff. And oh, on top of it all, they don't appreciate you. They don't respect you. They're taking advantage of you. And let me tell you, nothing is harder than to make up a proper response when your spouse believes that some other outside entity to the marriage is taking advantage of you. I've been there. I remember when I first got in this business and I was writing for free for NFLtalk.com. I'd get the wait a minute, are they paying you for this? Why are you putting in all this work and they're not paying you? And I was able at that point to explain, look, this is a a brick. This is one brick. And I got a feeling that this brick leads to another brick, leads to another brick. And eventually there's going to be a shitload of bricks and we're going to have one hell of a wall and we're going to have a big house that goes around that wall. But at least I had an explanation, right? I was at the beginning of the journey and I had a bigger play in mind, even though I didn't quite understand how it was all going to play out. Brady's at the end. Brady's on top. If he's ever going to be properly respected by his employer, it's now. What's your response when you're a guy who's worth $35 million a year, if not more? What's your response to that? When your spouse says, like Kramer to George, was it Kramer to George? Over the raincoats. Oh, it was George to Kramer, planting the idea in his mind that Morty Seinfeld, hi Morty, was ripping him off. Ripping you off. Ripping me off. How do you respond to that? So Tom Brady now thinks he's getting ripped off. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what he wants. Is it just a new contract? If they pay him $30 million a year, is everything fine now? If he makes at least as much as Jimmy Garoppolo, would it be fine? Wouldn't it be funny if the Ron Borges story that was based on a phony made-up source actually ends up being true? <laughs> that Brady wants as much, if not more, than Jimmy Garoppolo. Andrew Yeh. Great A.J. Green interview. Thank you very much. Loved his helmet idea. NFL players would be far more popular because they would be more recognizable. The rule could easily be changed and enforced to allow players to remove their helmets in celebrations. Yeah, the only thing you don't want to do is throw the helmet like Stephon Diggs did because that could have hit somebody. But why why not take off your helmet? What's the, what's the purpose of the rule against taking off your helmet? Because the rule against more creative celebrations was, well, we don't want guys to get too upset and maybe that'll lead to fisticuffs. And fisticuffs may lead to a rumble baloney. I, I like the idea from A.J. Green. And uh, I encourage I I it was great. It was great. And I it was a good response for him. And I could tell he would put some thought into it. And he relished the opportunity to say what he would do if he were the commissioner for a day. And I know you know some of you on Twitter, I, I mean AJ Green is not a diva. He's not he's not a an all about me kind of guy. But you could tell he was very engaged, and he gave very thoughtful answers. And just because he didn't yell and rant and rave and say, I love me some me, I, I, that was one of my favorite interviews of the year. Because I could tell he was giving real thought to the questions. And I, if you haven't heard it, check it out. We played it yesterday. It was on PFT Live today, and the video is available at profootballtalk.com. PFTP and posse, do you believe Malcolm Butler knows what he did to get benched during the Super Bowl? And if so, why would he not speak up about it assuming it doesn't paint him in a bad light? He's acted like he doesn't know. So I don't know. I, I just think that at some point we need to know what happened. And Ian Rappaport shared some of the things that he knows, some of the things he's learned. But I if all that stuff was accurate, it would be adequate. The fact that it's not adequate makes me wonder whether or not it's accurate. Andrew Ye. do you have a quick take on the new New York Times article regarding Washington cheerleaders and their treatment? Why do you think this story doesn't get as much traction as Richardson and Brandon's stories in terms of accountability? I, it, look, it's still early. I think it should. And just because Daniel Snyder wasn't directly involved, I think this is the kind of thing that the NFL should put heat on the organization. And if they don't know how to properly treat these individuals, these humans, who are members of the cheerleading squad, then they need to get rid of it. They need to stop doing it. If you can't do it right, don't do it. It's a different time than it used to be. And if the NFL wants to have true integrity, it can't just enforce its rules against players. It has to enforce its rules against teams, owners, executives, and other non-players. Especially because they tell us that non-players are held to a higher standard. Based upon some of the things we've seen over the years, I don't think that's true. Ned's feed, would the NFL ever consider bringing John Madden back to replace John Gruden in the booth? And if so, would he have to stop building his video game due to free time issues? Uh, Really? He doesn't do anything with the video game. He just lends his name to it. John Madden's in his 80s now. I don't know if if this is just a wisecrack or if this is serious. He's not going to go out and travel coast to coast in his bus at this age. He retired 10 years ago, nine years ago. Recliner QB, since no teams are showing interest in Dez, it's safe to assume that what Will McClay said is accurate, or is it more to do with his emotional personality issues? I think that there's a, a process here where you weigh one against the other. Like, okay, Dez is a handful. If he's a great player, we'll deal with him being a handful. But now he's not a great player, And maybe he'll be even more of a handful because not only did he get cut by the Cowboys, but he's making a million bucks from us. Like we don't want him at a million bucks because he's going to have a stick even farther up his butt because we're only paying him a million bucks. Like you have to pay him a certain amount to make him feel like, you know, he's worthy of you and you're worthy of him. So it may just be that his personality is causing teams to say it's not worth it. I'd rather go with someone else who may not be as good as Dez, but you know, isn't going to give us the headaches that Des possibly could. Status on the PFTP on Posse shirts. I got to get back in touch with my nephew. My nephew works for the NHL. It's a busy time. It's a playoffs if you haven't heard. So we'll see. At the Real Forno, if Adam Schefter were ever to take an interview with you, what would you ask him first? I interviewed him in the past. I just there, There's been some things that have happened that would probably make it not a good idea. I think his views on me have changed. My views on him have changed. And I'll just leave it at that. So I guess my first question would be, why did you agree to do this? We're apparently at a point where we don't really care that much for each other. So, or something. The Real 4 no is there any scenario where we see the NCAA become an essential minor league partnership with the NFL? Well, it already is. It's already the de facto minor leagues for the NFL question is, will the players ever get paid? And the real question is, will there ever be a viable alternative where guys who are playing in college can go get developmental reps during that three years between high school and eligibility for the draft? They don't have to go to college. They just have to wait three years. And, you know, I think more football leagues are going to be viable because people are going to want to bet on things. Alliance of American Football, XFL, CFL, Arena Football League. This may pump life back into the Arena Football League. Why? Because, you know, it's a Friday night and there's nothing going on. So, wait, there's a Arena Football League game on CBS Sports Network. Philadelphia versus, I don't know, one of the other cities where there's a team right now. Give me Philadelphia minus six and a half. All right, I'll watch that game. I got a hundred bucks on it. Let's go double our money or lose it. Recliner QB, if Eric Flowers would have hired an agent earlier, do you think he would be on a new team or at least in a better situation than he currently is with the Giants? Seems like an agent could have helped him quite a bit since he's been in the NFL. Here's where an agent could have helped him as it relates to his situation with the Giants. The agent could have been pushing aggressively for a trade to be done back in February. Hey, uh, Dave Gettleman, look, you don't want this guy. He doesn't want to be here. He needs a fresh start. Can we find somebody? Can we find somebody? And you keep calling. Can you find somebody? Hey, Dave, how's it going? Hope you're doing well. Can you find somebody? Can we find somebody? And here's the other reality too. You know, favors get traded at every level of this business. If you're an agent who's plugged in and has other players who either are or will be playing for that team, you call up and you say, I need you to do something for Eric Flowers. Sometimes they will, just to buy goodwill For a point where the agent is in a position to exercise some discretion and the agent is willing to do so. Now, the best interests of the individual sometimes get thrown under the bus a little when that type of horse trading happens. But it also helps get things done. And when Eric Flowers is representing himself and he's in a delicate spot, it's kind of difficult for him to call Dave Gettleman every day and say, when are you going to trade me? When are you going to trade me? When are you going to trade me? And when Gettleman says to him, what are you going to do for me? He says, well, I'll go to the new team. But when it's an agent that has 50, 60, 70, 100 guys, you know, there's an an unspoken way to do business. It's a relationship business and people who have good relationships help each other out. That's why, you know, I, I, I think that it's possible at some point you're going to see a 49ers Patriots trade where it feels like the Patriots get the better of the deal to balance out the Garoppolo trade. There's a balance, there's a harmony. There's a back scratching process. That's just the way it is. All right, let's see what else we have here. At J C C Arm, other than Mike Brown being a cheapskate, why or why not would Des Bryant work in Cincinnati? Um, I, 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 I mean they've got they hope they get something out of John Ross. They have A J Green. Tyler Eifert's back. I just think that teams are reluctant. And I think Marvin Lewis in Cincinnati would be even more reluctant because he went through the Chad Johnson-Terrell Owens experiment in 2010. I don't think he wants an emotional and high-strung wide receiver, especially after seven years of A.J. Green. Let's see what else we have here. I probably should wrap this up because, again, this, with the interviews, has been probably one of the longest ones we've ever done. Can a team with a franchise tag player trade for another player with one of the tags? For example, could the Browns have traded for Jarvis Landry if they already had a tag player? Yes. Yeah, you can do that because it's exercising the tag, not having a player on a one-year contract. What happens is once the player signs the franchise tender, he's on a one-year contract for the franchise amount. So you trade for him and you have him now. You have a player on a one-year contract. You didn't use the franchise tag. The player signed it, he accepted it, and as part of the As part of the process, he could be traded after that. So, yes. At recliner QB, if no team is willing to sign Dez for the veteran minimum, why did the Ravens offer him a multi-year contract? That's a great question, because they supposedly did. Most teams don't want to pay him the veteran minimum. All it takes is one, though. 31 teams can shout, no, no, no. All it takes is one to say yes. And I feel like that's going to happen at some point. At Mike likes dirt is advocating Gerard Mayo as a PFT PM guest. Maybe we will try that out. I should probably wrap this up. I got some, I'm getting a bunch of texts now too. I probably need to get back to it. It's been a long day. We've done these interviews over and above the regular PFT live PFT PM podcast. So if I didn't get to your question, keep asking it. We'll do it again. Hopefully tomorrow, maybe Friday. I don't know. We've done like 13 straight days of the PFTPM podcast. I do need your help though in spreading the word, getting your friends to listen, rate and review the podcast. I haven't seen many new ratings in this algorithm that nobody quite understands. It does have an impact on how the podcast is viewed, how it's regarded. So if you're still listening this far in, that tells me that you probably like it. If you like it and you haven't reviewed it yet, go review it. Introduce your friends to it. Spread the word and let the PFTPM posse continue to grow. I think it's up over 400 now, although I think there's a lot more people that are actually listening. We still need more, whatever it is. People, you know, hey, you know what do you want? Anytime anybody asks me what I want, my answer is more. And we need a lot more to get the PFTPM podcast to where it should be. But I, I think you all agree, or you wouldn't be listening to it. The quality is there. The interviews are fun. I try to give you some insight in a more relaxed setting with the occasional shit or piss thrown in. So let's see if we can grow this thing. And otherwise, let's have fun while it lasts. We'll do it again Thursday or Friday. Oh, well, we're going to have Chris Sims Thursday or Friday. The plan for now is Thursday. So if that changes, I'll let you know. But for now, tentative Chris Sims Thursday, and we'll see if we can work that one out. Have a great Wednesday. Talk to you tomorrow.